The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Mauricio Romero, who holds a degree in electrical engineering from the University of Florida. Mauricio is a principal engineer at Johnson & Johnson's Vistacon division, where they develop eye care products, and he is heavily involved in automation, which will be uh, much of the focus of our conversation today. So Mauricio, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. What made you decide to become an engineer? So I think I think early on in my life, right as a as a young kid, I think I used to uh, love technology. I've always kind of wanted to learn how things were work. Uh, I've always been involved in software. I remember writing software programs for my younger brother to learn how to how to uh, how to do math problems uh, when I was probably in middle school. Oh wow! Uh, and what, yeah, what so, programming were we using back then? Oh, so I was going to tell you how old I am. I had a TI-44 <laughs> uh, programming in BASIC. and uh, TI-44, that's a calculator, right? No, it's, uh, well, it probably is as powerful as, a, as today's calculator, but uh, <laughs> it was a Texas Instruments PC that you kind of put a slot on the side for uh, for BASIC uh, programming. And, and okay. believe it or not, you used to save the programs on cassettes. So long time ago. Interesting. Okay. Back in the early days of programming. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you started programming, helping your brother, and that, what, one thing led to another? Yeah, so when I was in high school, I took a, a aptitude test, and it, two things came out, you know, so I've always loved math and sciences, and I think it came out as either, you know, you might want to look into accounting or engineering. I was taking an accounting course, and, you know, my wife is an accountant, so, you know, I don't think I can be an accountant. That was not, you know, that was not my company. I don't think I would enjoy doing that. Uh, but I'm sure people, you know, find it rewarding. Uh, so I started looking into engineering and what options I had there. And uh, I remember looking early on through uh, through one of the colleges, the type of courses you'd be taking in college and, uh, you know, what the topics were. And, and I, I wanted to take them all. I, I was interested in all of them to try to, you know, I wanted to take them all. So I knew right away that, you know, engineering was my passion, right? So and my, and my parents always told me, you know, find something you love and get paid for it, right? That's the best thing you can do. Because, yeah. any, you know, with any job, you can have some days that are not the greatest, but you can always get up in the morning and say, you know, this is what I love to do. I'm, I, I don't want to do anything else, right? You, you shouldn't have any regrets with your career. You should always do what you love, not chase the money or any fame or anything like that. If you if you love what you do, that's the best kind of reward you can have. Oof, wise words. Absolutely. Yeah. Money only goes so far, right? Yeah. At the end of yeah. the day, you need to be happy with what you're doing. Absolutely. Let's see. You, you worked early on for a company called AmericDisc in your yeah. career, and I couldn't find much about them online. As far as I could find, they they were or maybe are still a manufacturer of was it compact discs or, or something yeah. like that? Yeah, they make compact disc. It's a it's a French Canadian company. You probably don't see it because the mother plant is uh, called Disc Amérique. It's in Canada. Okay. And uh, but yeah, it was early on in my career. It was a very small plant. 
uh, down in South Florida, and, and we made compact discs. And back then, it was mostly uh, music and uh, and some software. We used to make, uh, so I don't know if you, you probably may be too young, but AOL used to send out gazillion uh, discs for- I remember that. Early yeah. on, well, we made yeah. millions of them. We made okay. millions of them. Uh, so uh, it was a great company to work for uh, because early in my career, especially because, you know, being so small, it allowed me to wear many hats. So I'm an electrical engineer by degree, but I was involved not just in electrical engineering, but in injection molding, a lot of software, a lot of mechanical engineering. So it really exposed me to many disciplines of, of the engineering sector. And it kind of, you know, a lot of, a lot of times, at least when I was coming out of school, I thought, well, I'm an electrical engineer. I'm going to do electrical engineering only. And what you learn out in the industry is, you know, I've worked with many mechanical engineers that are excellent software developers, right? So engineering really teaches you how to learn, in my opinion. Once you get into a career, you might you might go one way or another. Uh, like I said, in this particular company, you know, I learned a lot about injection molding. I, let, I learned a lot about mechanical engineering, mechanical design, and as well as software. Yeah, I think that uh, a degree in engineering is so valuable because it opens a lot of different doors, right? You're not pigeonholed into like one tiny thing. You can do so many different things with a degree in engineering. Even if you stay within the electrical engineering, uh, you know, area, there's so many different places, communications, software, just power. I mean, there's control systems. There's so much. Yeah. What? What what is the manufacturing process like for compact discs? I'm I'm curious about this. So it's uh, there's an injection molding process. So the first the first thing that happens is you create a master, and a master gets created from uh, uh, it's it's actually uh, it's a it's a nickel disc that has all the little pits and grooves that make the information right. So everything gets mastered from it. Like if it's a uh, if it's a piece of music, you get a mastered like a digital uh, tape. And, and, then and that the pits is, and grooves, these are the ones and zeros? Yep. So the okay. pits and the pits and the, the little pits and valleys, you know, are the ones that, that determine whether, you know, you have a one and zero. So everything becomes binary. So uh, so that's the master, right? From there, that gets put into an injection molding machine and the disc gets injection molded. So you get this clear disc that comes out of the injection molding machine. And then uh, it goes into a vacuum process where it, it's, it's a sputtering process. Essentially, you pull a vacuum. You inject uh, an inner gas like uh, argon. You create a, a voltage difference, and essentially the argon crashes into aluminum target and deposits aluminum over the the, the plastic and creates that reflective uh, layer that you that you're familiar when you look at a compact disc. You then put it on a on a so you get a little covering of lacquer to protect that aluminum so it doesn't oxidize or anything happens to it. And uh, and then you do the artwork over it, right? So okay, I mean, high level. That's the way it works, right? It's very, very interesting, very uh, very interesting process. Where uh, physically, where are the little the the pits and grooves? Is that in the injection molded plastic, or is that yeah. in the deposited aluminum? In the injection molded plastic. Oh, it is. So it's actually yeah. in the plastic. It's so if plastic. you were to look yeah. with a microscope at that plastic, would you see these little? You probably can, you, so if you flip up a CD, you can see how the light gets refracted in mm -hmm. different colors. You see like a rainbow there, and that's because of the light being refracted between the little, the little, uh, the little pits and stuff. So you, the information okay. is there. You would have to really look really closely to be able to see that. 
But in uh, theory, if you look with a high enough power microscope, yeah. you could see yeah. little detents and yeah. interesting. Okay, cool. All right. Well, you have um, a ton of experience with automation, um, at least for the past 10 years or, or maybe more. That's been kind of your primary focus. Um, PLCs and, and HMIs. How did you first learn about the world of automation? So in that in that uh in that environment so i always kind of like control systems right so that was one of the things that i was interested in. there were two areas control system and power systems what i kind of enjoyed uh studying when i was in college so and when i went to work for this uh compact this manufacturing plant everything is very automated so the the even from you know all the machines and everything that you're making the compact this from it was you know you you put out you put a a uh, the master at the front and you get a, a finished cd at the end right so very uh very automated. So that got me involved in the automation piece. Uh, when I moved over to J&J, uh, &J, where we uh, we make contact lenses, it was also a very automated process. So that kind of kept my career going, if you will, in this automation uh, area. And it and, and you know I've been lucky in the sense that both at the Merck Disc and at J and J, you know, I've been allowed to get involved in, in, in multiple areas, right? So my injection molding background is what got me the position over in uh, in uh, in J, J. But really, if I look at my career, I've probably done very little injection molding since the beginning, and it's been more on the software automation piece. Okay. Uh, so. Can you tell us about, I mean, without disclosing any confidential details, of course, uh, uh, some of the projects that you've worked on where you had to automate, uh, I don't know, an assembly line or some kind of inspection process or whatever it was, piece of equipment? Yeah, so we have multiple generations of equipment uh, that have... Uh, that have improved upon each other, right? So if you if, and based on the needs of, of of what we're trying to what we're trying to manufacture, uh, I I've been involved. Um, so for the first probably ten years of my career, I worked in engineering. Uh, then after that, I moved into R and D. So I have a little bit of experience from both perspectives. So uh, in in when I worked in engineering, it was a lot about, you know, improving upon the processes that we have right now. So some of our equipment came in and was only able to, you know, I can't tell you the numbers, but it was only designed to make a certain amount of lenses per shift, right? Since then, it's probably been, you know, a triple or quadruple. Wow. So, uh, so and that's gone through just looking at different areas and how can we improve, looking at new technologies and seeing how can we uh how can we essentially, you know, we're a manufacturing site, so the more you can make, you know, the better, right? Uh, so, so that's been my experience within the within the engineering side of things. And then when I moved to R and D, it was a little bit different because it was kind of like, okay, we need to come up with something new, right? What is the next generation? What is the next piece of equipment that's going to meet the needs of the products that are coming? So that was a different challenge because now you're not just improving upon what you were given, but you, now we have a blank slate and okay what how does how does that form how does that become a product that that's going to be scalable and can be transferred over to uh to manufacturing yeah yeah um how how do you decide or how should a company decide that it's time to start automating a process as opposed to just doing it manually you know what are what are the triggers that when you uh, experience these triggers or, or notice these triggers, you should think, okay, it's probably start. It's probably time to start automating this process. Yeah, I think I think a lot of things have to deal with you know 
what you're trying to gain out of it. I think we've, we've been guilty of maybe over automating some areas, right? In some, some, some areas it's like, really, do you want to auto, you know, what's the value? What's the value proposition of automating this? Now, at the end of the day, you need to be able to weigh that value to the effort because automating things is costly, right? You, you're investing on new equipment. You're investing quite a, a bit of, uh, of, uh, of resources and funding to come up with a new piece of equipment. But at the end of the day, is, is the piece that you're automating uh, worth it? And I'm not saying, you know, that you don't automate a part of it, but you got to figure out how big is that automation. You don't want to automate too much because then you're kind of wasting a lot of effort and you end up making things a little bit not as flexible as you should. But there's mm. learning areas that you can look at and bring value in, in, into, uh, into the automation piece. I'll tell you one project that we probably, that was not successful, uh, where we, we went a little too far. We kind of built this piece of equipment. It was a good idea at the time, but we went too far on the automation process. The good thing about that project is we were able to leverage uh, two technologies out of that that became very successful. So while the project itself was not a successful project, there were two pieces that we were able to forward and into, into other products, and it really made a big difference into and it, it, it smaller pieces of that overall automating, uh, automation project that we were able to leverage. So I think, I think it's, it's about looking at what you're trying to achieve and seeing if it's, you know, what is the return on investment? How much is this, this really going to buy me at the end of the day, right? Automating for the sake of automating is not, it's not a good plan. That, that's a great point. Uh, are you aware of any rule of thumb as far as uh, automating a process is going to cost, you know, this much X versus just doing it manually? Maybe it's like 2X to automate it or 5X to automate it uh, over the, you know, the first year or something. Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot. it's not just the cost that you look at, but the, you also look at the people, right? Safety has a lot to do with it. You know, if, you, if you're doing something that's, that's, that's very repetitious and may lead to some ergonomic type injuries for, for, for the workforce, you definitely want to look into automating it, right? And then you start kind of looking at that from a different perspective. You also look at the quality, capability, repeatability of the processes that you want to do and whether all those drive. So there's many factors that you look into to figure out does this make sense for us to go forward? We've, we've automated places where, you know, we've done it just for the for, for safety purposes, right? We, it's not that somebody's going to get hurt, but it has a potential to lead to somebody having an ergonomic type issue because of the repetitiveness of it. So when you look at those things, automation is a perfect way to eliminate uh, the, 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 you know, the human risk factor of somebody uh, having an ergo issue. Yeah, we worked on a project like that uh, a few years back. There was a, a medical device that needed to be actuated over and over and over to test it, make sure it was working correctly. And uh, the company had uh, just a, an operator doing that. And the operators were getting uh, like carpal tunnel syndrome, you know, mm -hmm. repetitive stress injuries from doing this over and over and over. And so we, we just automated a, a quick little fixture for them to do that. Um, it, you mentioned that there is always the risk of over automating something. And you mentioned specifically that uh, uh, over automating something could cause the problem of the process not being flexible enough. Um, what, what types of processes do you think should not be automated because they'd be too inflexible or just, you know, for w whatever reason? 
So I think you have to look at from the from the you know from the manual process itself, right? What is it that you're trying to do to achieve? And is it is it a simple game? Like, okay, we're gonna automate this process, but it's really not you're not gaining anything by automating. In other words, there is no risk to the to the operator. There's really no risk from a, from a, a capability perspective or repeatability. And then are you just automating it because you want to automate it, right? So I think those are, there's, there's many factors that you have to look at, but a lot of times we just look at the really, okay, the operator just needs to do this little simple thing. Do we really need to automate this? Is this going to bring us a lot of volume, uh, value or should we focus on more complex you know, repetitive type issues or areas where we know we have, you know, a repetitive issue or a capability issue or something that a machine can do better than a human, right? And as an engineer, it's probably hard at times to pull yourself back and say, no, we we don't need to automate this because automating things is fun, right? Automating things is fun. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably <laughs> the best thing. Uh, and it can be, and it can be. But, you know, we, you know, I think that's where you work you know, we work as a team, right? So it's not, yeah, you have a lead for a project, but we, it gets discussed and, uh, and, and, and people challenge it, right? People will challenge the fact, hey, you, are you really thinking that we need to put an effort into this when it, it really doesn't, you know, what are we going to gain from it? I mean, you're going to spend all this money and you're really not getting much from it, right? So, yeah. so it, it does pay to take a step back and, and look at the big picture, you know, every so often to make sure you're going down the right path. What are some of the limitations in automation today that you think uh, might be solved in the next, you know, five or, or ten years? What, what kind of technologies are going to be introduced to the automation environment that that uh, just don't exist now? Uh, so I think some of the stuff that's coming in now that's pretty interesting is is around robotics, right? And you see this ro- the autonomous robots that can that without you know we're used to you know. You put a robot, you have to have guarding around it, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and for safety purposes. And now you have these, these, these little autonomous little robots that go all over the place that can interact with humans, right? They, they walk around you. They can, they can do a lot of stuff for you. And I think it's, it's an interesting technology, uh, in the sense that, you know, what can that open for, for, uh, for, for the automation side? Because a lot of times, you know, it's difficult to automate because of the guarding that you have to put in there to protect the operator. But now these ro- this, this new robots are are meant to be interacting with people, right? So the the, the safety is there. Uh, it just it's interesting to 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 figure out how is that going to change the way we look at we look at automation today. Yeah, yeah, you're referring to uh, like collaborative robots, yep, right? Like collaborative robots, yeah. robot, and yeah, okay. Um, can you describe for us the general architecture of an automated system? I mean, what, what are the main components or categories that, that an automated system typically will have? I mean, you usually have your devices, your low-level devices, right, that are either connected to, a, to some kind of bus or, or directly to a, some type of controller, right? It could be a PLC. I mean, we have PCs, PC-based controllers. And then uh, it depends on the automation at the sites, but usually like in our site, we have everything kind of interconnected up to our, you know, MES, ERP systems so that, you know, the whole is, is the whole ecosystem, right? Uh, that works together to, to really uh, deliver whatever product you're trying to make, right? But usually have layers, right? You have your devices and sometimes you have smart devices that have some, uh, some intelligence on them, uh, like server controllers, you know, uh, vision systems and such. But usually on a manufacturing uh, line, 
you usually have like a master controller, which is either a PLC or some type of PC. Uh, okay. We uh, we actually use LabVIEW quite a bit to do mm-hmm. some of our automation, and that ends up being effectively a PC controller. Is that something that uh, you you folks ever use, or are you strictly you know Alan Bradley Siemens kind of the big uh, traditional industrial automation giants? It, yeah, and most of the in most of the the manufacturing lines is probably you know the the, the big Alan Bradley you know Siemens type type stuff. In some of our smaller probably instrumentation and stuff. There's, it's, it's a little bit mixed of, uh, we probably start with LabVIEW, but it doesn't, it, I don't know if we've actually made anything final in LabVIEW. LabVIEW is kind of like a place for, that we've been using kind of to, to test things and kind of come up with, uh, you know, how can this work? Like Kind of like an R&D environment. Okay. And yeah. uh, eventually it makes it into something, you know, it could be, it could be PC-based, it could be PLC-based, it could be a mixture of both, right? So, yeah. Yeah, uh, you mentioned uh, Alan Bradley and Siemens, uh, and you're familiar with both of them. Do you see distinct advantages of one over the other, Alan Bradley versus Siemens, or are they kind of the same? And you can do pretty much the same thing with either one. Oh man, that's a that you know you can have you can have like a three year discussion on this one. And, <laughs> I'm and, opening and, up know, a can like, of words. Yeah, you get you you have some people that are diehard one word. <laughs> this is like uh, Canon versus Nikon for photographers. Yeah, yeah. So in my opinion, right? This is my opinion. I think uh, Siemens is probably, in my opinion, is probably geared more towards like the process industry where you're actually you know you have this big batches and you have mixers and and things as such. And for like discrete type manufacturing, I probably would say Adam Bradley is probably more geared to that. I'm sure I'll get more people that will disagree with me, you know, one way or the trolls. other. Uh, yeah. But I, you know, it's funny. It's funny that still though, I, I see a, a convergence in the way, um, in the way things are going from a PLC perspective. You know, traditionally, you know, ladder logic was is king. It still is in, in most areas. But you know this structured text uh, area is coming up a lot quicker, and 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 really with younger engineers, you know they're coming ready to program in structured text as opposed to ladder logic. Is what and, we're. And speaking. when you say structured text, is this, you're referring to like C, Python, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, automation basic, whatever, whatever each one wants to call it, right? Uh, but that's you know I'm seeing a big trend, even with with the newer engineers that are coming on board, they're coming in ready, ready to program in that language, with, which Ladder logic might not be their, their 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 easiest thing for them to learn. Interesting. All right. Well, this is a, a good time to take a short break and uh, share with the listeners that testfixturedesign.com is where you can learn more about uh, my team, Pipeline Design and Engineering, and how we help medical device engineering teams who need turnkey custom test fixtures or automated equipment to assemble, inspect, characterize, or perform verification or validation testing on their devices. Uh, we're speaking with Mauricio Romero today, a principal engineer at Johnson & Johnson's Vistacon division who specializes in automation. So uh, Mauricio, I'll take a step outside of automation just for a second here and ask you, uh, over the years, uh, have are there any any habits that you've developed that have proven useful to you just in terms of being more productive? Yeah, so I think... Uh... Attention to detail is, is something important in an engineering uh, profession, right? I think uh, when I was, uh, and this is something I learned when I was in college, I had a professor who would, like if a problem was worth 10 points and your, and your answer was way off, he would take 
seven or 10 points off, right? So you can actually get a negative score uh, if you did really well, really bad. And because he always used to say, you know, a negative sign makes a difference between a rocket going up or crashing down, right? Interesting, so yeah. his thing was always, you, you need to understand the problem enough so that when you get the answer, you should know that you're way off, right? You should know that you're not in, in the ballpark at the very least. Um, I think that's carried on to, to, my, uh, to my career in the sense that I put a lot of emphasis, especially early on, right? I think uh, I, I like to put a lot of effort early on the projects to make sure that, the, that, that at the end, it's kind of like, you know, it should be, it should be smooth sailing, right? Uh, it involves a lot, of, a lot of research and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of work just to make sure that we, we, we have good documentation, we got good understanding, and, and we start the project correctly. I think that's probably one of the things that I've carried on my career pretty much from, uh, from the get-go. How, uh, how do you think that you have developed this uh, attention to detail? I mean, is that something that just comes with experience or are there specific tactics that one can take to develop that, that uh, trait? So I think the, the main thing that I, that I think drives me to that is, uh, in my opinion, right, avoiding the fire is always the best approach, right? And the way you avoid the fire is by preparing early. So just like when we, you know, when we, uh, when we take a test or something, we, you know, the better we study, the better we're going to do on the test. The same thing with a project, right? The better we prepare ourselves uh, before the execution starts, the better the execution is going to be. So it's, it's kind of a way of thinking, uh, you know, by nature, you know, humans kind of like prognosticate and kind of leave it for last. But <laughs> it, it's, it's kind of a way for, of thinking uh, uh, that, that I like to... Uh, that, that I like to follow, right? And I think uh, you kind of, again, my team to buy into it by saying, you know, the we will celebrate bigger uh, achievements when, when we avoid the fire than when we are having to fight the fire. Sometimes in, sometimes you get a lot more recognition by fighting the fire because people see that there's a fire and they see you working really hard at it. And maybe you don't get recognition when something goes well just because it just happens, right? Especially, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, especially in software, right? In software, you don't really, you know, okay, you know, you see, you see Google, right? Google's a button. You know, you put a word in there, you press a button, and magic happens, right? But behind that button is millions and gazillions of, of lines of code, right? Right. But you only see it. You only kind of you take it for granted. You, you put a search term, you hit a button, and boom, all these results come out, right? Uh, you only notice it when the button doesn't work, right? But otherwise, you kind of take it for granted. That's a great way to think about it. Uh, I like what you said about procrastinating. I have never been one to procrastinate. I, uh, a customer of mine once, uh, many years ago said, I bet you were the guy in college that, uh, waited till the very end to study for the test. And I said, no, that was the opposite of me. I was the guy studying like, you know, three weeks in advance for the test. Um, but yeah, I've never been one to procrastinate and, and uh, we've actually started doing, um, pre-mortems at, at pipeline where, uh, instead of, you know, doing a lessons learned at the end of a project, which we also do at the beginning, especially of a large complex project, we'll do a pre-mortem and we'll pretend that the project has ended and it was a disaster. Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. And putting ourselves in that mindset, we'll ask the question, okay, what went wrong and how could we have pre prevented it? And it's been a really great tool to identify uh, beforehand some of the problems that, that that could come up that maybe we wouldn't have caught otherwise. I like that idea. I may have to steal that from you and use it uh, with my teams. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's. Uh, I wish I could take credit for it. It's not mine, but uh, we stole it from someone else. Feel free to, free to steal it from us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, uh, you mentioned briefly safety earlier. What what safety precautions do automation teams need to kind of uh, take into account when when performing um, uh, uh, when developing a system that's going to be you know used by an operator? I mean, I think I think the best approach is is to look at it from a zero access perspective, right? So that that means that uh, even if the even if the technician wanted to get hurt, I mean, sometimes you look at it it's like, okay, somebody's not going to do that, but you'd be amazed what people end up doing uh, that you think they do not do, right? Sounds so, like you have some stories about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, you have, and I think, and I think it pays to look at it from a zero access perspective and say, can somebody intentionally get hurt doing this stuff, right? And if they can't, then you you achieve the ultimate goal, right? I think, uh, um, you know, I I you know I I have a personal uh, connection to the to to the guys that that are running manufacturing lines. I know them. I've been there for many years. So for me, it's a personal connection that, you know, I'm I'm building something for them, and I don't I want them to come. Up to go home the same way they came to work, right? And so we, we take it very seriously, uh, J and J, uh, and and we look at it from from that perspective, where you know zero access is the bare minimum. That's a great way to think about it. If they can't get into the system, then they can't hurt themselves. They can't hurt themselves, right? And and you and there's safeties, guard doors, and making sure that power gets removed when you open a door, and there's all kinds of stuff. So there's there's you know there's definitely ways to get around things uh, to make sure that that. At the end of the day, there's, there's really zero access for the individual to get hurt. Yeah, that's great. Um, let's see. If, if you were designing a system that uh, you wanted to be used manually, you're, you're designing a manual, non-automated system. But in the future, you want to be able to upgrade it uh, so that it can be automated. What are maybe some some considerations that one should take to account for you know the, the future upgrade? So I think if you're looking at if you're looking at a process that you want to that you want to automate, right? Um, the the first thing is you know first you have to decide whether it's worth automating, right? I think that's 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 given. Uh, as far as the automation and what are the things that you need to to look at um, from from a it, it depends, right? If I if I'm putting something, I remember one thing that we used to do that was very manual was on, on the repackaging. If we had to do an inspection, we had to repackage product or do those type of things. Uh, we started we started very small, very we started manual. We went to a semi manual, and then we fully automated the, the 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 process, right? So I think taking it in chunks is probably the best. You know, it's like you know how do you how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time. <laughs> it pays off in some of these some of these things. Now, some 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 minor processes are easy to automate, right? And maybe you just go in and 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 fully automate those those processes. But usually, if you're starting manual, then you probably it's probably a complex manual type process that requires some steps for you to be able to automate. Yeah. And uh, and you don't want to make the mistake in completely automating something or automating incorrectly or making it so inflexible that you have to redesign the equipment every time something changes, right? So I think automating by piece is probably, you know, a good approach. That's an interesting approach. That makes sense. Okay. Um, can you share some of your, your favorite vendors for automation equipment, whether it's motors or PLCs or HMIs or just general automation 
uh, resources, any any vendors that you've really found to be useful or helpful that other listeners might also uh, find value in knowing about. So, I mean, I think I think from a from from a PLC perspective, you know, we we worked a lot with uh, with Alan Bradley. Uh, they've been great partners uh, working uh, with us. Uh, we worked a lot with you know one one PLC that's probably not as much known. Uh, here in the U.S., but I really enjoy working is uh, BNR. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been also they were also very very good to work with, and it was early in my career, and uh, I found that PLC to be extremely powerful. Uh, some of the you know we work with Wonderware uh, for our HMIs. Um, um, I like I like Emerson servos as well. I think they're they're pretty easy to set up and pretty easy to use. Great. Um, so I mean. That's probably off the top of my head a few of the companies that I, that I can think of. That I- yeah, thank you for sharing those. All right. When, uh, w- when you're designing an automated system, I imagine that you're, you're usually not designing that system to be run by engineers, but rather by you know, less highly trained operators. Um, what are some of the best practices that, that you've incorporated into your equipment to ensure that it can be used safely and effectively by operators who you know, maybe don't have the technical technical skills that an engineer does. So, in every project that I worked in, I've always had the technicians be part of the team. I think that's uh, you, you'd be amazed at how some things that you think are very important for the for the technician, the technician says that that's not going to help me any, <laughs> or, oh, or you don't have to do this, right? This is this is not it's not worth it. Just leave it yeah. like it is. There's no need. It's not it's, it's not a big deal. Uh, but every Every project that I've been involved, I always have the the technician or 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 or, or a member of the team is, is a technician that starts from the very beginning to the very end. Uh, they end up being part of the commissioning process. There, they sit on design reviews. They bring in all kinds of input. So, to me, that you know, they're your customer, right? They're the ones that are gonna, you know, it doesn't matter how good the system is if they can't run it, it's a failure, right? So yeah. I think it, it, it not only does it does it help you from uh, building a good system that they're gonna that they're gonna uh, be able to work in, but it gets that buy-in from the technician. It's like I had an input into this. This is my line, right? This is not a line you're giving me, but this is my line, and 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 it helps with training. It helps with so many other things. And uh, I mean, we we do it pretty much with every project. We always have the 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 end user or whoever's going to be you know running the the equipment be part of the project team. That's a that's a fantastic strategy. I love how uh, your your mindset that you just shared of uh, the technician is your customer, right? Um, if, if you're designing a widget, I don't know some uh, a device, a, an iPhone case, or a medical device, you're the customer is the customer, right? It's the end user, the the person who purchased that iPhone case, or the doctor that uses that medical device. In this case, in automation, the customer is the technician. That's uh, that's a, a really um, uh, clever and wise way to think about it. Um, all right, I've just got a, a couple more questions for you here. Um, what is the qualification process like for, for your equipment? Um, so you, you've created this, you know, incredible piece of automated, uh, machinery and it's supposed to do X, Y, Z process. How do you go about validating that your machine actually does perform this X, Y, Z process? 
So, so we make, we sell medical devices, right? So we we follow we follow the IQO, QPQ process, you know, V V model, uh, if you will, to validate our process. So it's very because we you know we're regulated by the FDA. We have a very specific documentation and process that we need to follow when we validate a particular piece of equipment, right? Yeah. It's the, the installation of the equipment, the validation of the process, the validation of the product that's going to be running in in, in the in, within the machine. Uh, so, so quite a bit of work, right? I guess you can imagine, you know, this is a medical device. People put it in their eyes. So there's 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 a uh, quite a bit of work on the, on the validation side. Yeah. Are, are there any, um, a few granular details that you can share about what that qualification process looks like in general for uh, a piece of automated machinery? So, you know, it starts with the requirements. So it's just the V model. If you want to look at it that way, you have the requirements uh, and then you have a, a detailed design document and a final design document. And then after all those things are approved, then you start building the system. From there, you create test scripts uh, to make sure that everything is traceable, right? From the from that every requirement has has been tested thoroughly to ensure that you're delivering the what you what you said you were going to deliver. Um, so essentially, that's what it is, right? Is 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 a is a requirement that ends up being validated with a te- with certain tests to make sure that you know it delivers uh, what you need to do. Yeah, every requirement has traceability. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what what career advice would you give younger engineers who are interested in going into automation? That are already in, in, in automation, or they're they're wanting to go into. Wanting to go into. Uh, so I, I think automation is a uh, it's a very interesting field. It's always changing. Technology has changed so much in the past few years. Um, if you want, if you're interested in, in making things move and, and seeing how things work, uh, it's a great field to be in, right? I mean, I think uh, I have I have friends that work in IT that do software and nothing ever moves, right? I, right. I, I, like, okay, I want to see something move, you know? Yeah, <laughs> Grab this piece, put it here, do something, right? Uh, so I think from that perspective, it's a great thing. You get it's such a huge sense of accomplishment once you build something and there it is, right? You see it, you can you can feel it it's actually making something uh, making a product contributing to the to you know to the goals of the company i think those are the if you like that kind of challenge if you like those type of uh you know activities then then by all means right are there any um i don't know any any um resources or uh, i don't know curriculums or what how how can a, a young engineer prepare him or herself to succeed in the field of automation so honestly you know i think the best thing an engine engineers can do and this could be you know whether they're going into automation or not is while they're going to school take advantage of either internships or co-ops uh, we we leverage a lot of co-ops and a lot of uh, summer interns, uh, and and we've had instances where you know these guys came in thinking that they wanted to do something and they they just loved it, right? And and, and it's changed their career, it's changed the way they they think about it. And we hire some of them, some of them are working with us, right? So uh, so I think if you really want to know whether you like this or not, I don't know if you get that that you know like a class. You'll, if I remember going back to class, I never took a class on PLCs, right? There may be classes on PLC. Now, I took programming classes. I took C 
and all those things. So if you're interested, if you if you find that that is something that interests you, then definitely automation has that to to uh, to offer to you. But in my opinion, the best way you can really learn if that's what you want to do and and you're still in college is take advantage of a summer internship and intern in an automation company or or go to a company that 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 has high level automation and see firsthand whether that's what you want to do. Yeah, get some experience actually doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what are uh, what are a few of the biggest challenges that that you face at work? So I think uh, you know it, it, I think the from from an automation perspective and from a project perspective, right? Sometimes you know uh, how do you you know that we talk a lot about you know taking risk, right? And especially in automation, as we as we push that envelope, right? You can either look at, you know, some, some people look at it as, you know, where, you know, an entrepreneur looks at risks and takes it, right? A businessman looks to minimize risk, right? And sometimes you have to figure out, are you going to be an entrepreneur or are you going to be a businessman? And sometimes, you know, the business dynamics kind of force you in a, in a different direction. And I think some of the challenges is as you're building new things, you got to figure out what it is that you, uh, that you're trying to achieve, right? And I think, you know, a lot of it is, you know, uh, selling your idea. You know, as engineers, I think that's something that we don't realize is how much of a salespeople we need to be mm. and, uh, and selling your idea because, you know, you got to get, you got to get the money, you got to get the approval. And yeah. uh, that's something that's, that's a little soft skill that most engineers don't have. Right. We, we see it and we're like, it's obvious to us that this is going to be great. I mean, look at it, look at the technology. This is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta you gotta be able to sell that idea and be able to get you know the buy-in from the from 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 your business leaders to be able to fund that project for you right and i think that's uh that that, that can be a challenge because now you're trying to communicate your 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 process and what is the value of it to a non-technical person right yeah. They don't care. They don't care that the PLC that you're using is the best PLC in the world, right? Or the or the servos that you're look at. Look how cool these servos are and what I can do. They they really don't care. It's like right. what is the yeah. value at the end of the day, right? To this exactly. How does it help them and their their goals? How does it help them achieve their goals? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Mauricio, this has been wonderful. Um, what uh, if people want to get a hold of you or or learn learn more about where you work? Uh, what's the best way for for someone to get a hold of you? Yeah, so they can probably reach me on my email. Um, it's mromero at its.jnj.com. That's probably the best way to, to get a hold of me. All right, terrific. Well, thank you again so much for spending some time with us. I really appreciate all the answers you've shared, um, and it's been just uh, delightful getting to know you. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening.